This week on the Good Future Podcast, we're continuing our series that explores how an investor can have impact in listed equity markets. Impact investing has a long history in private markets. When it comes to investing in public companies that are listed on a stock exchange, it's a lot harder to measure your impact and to influence the companies you're investing in. And today we have Tim King on the show to talk about his approach to impact at Melior Investment Management. Tim is Chief Investment Officer. He has deep experience in wrangling equity markets. And as you'll hear today, he's applied his broad research and analysis skills to measuring impact and driving positive change. Millior aims to identify high-impact companies in Australia, but they also appreciate the importance of leading large, well-known companies in their transition towards impact, in realigning their corporate purpose beyond the narrow metrics of financial reports. But I'll let Tim tell you all about that. First, I'd like to introduce you to the sponsor of this series, and that's the ACCR, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. The ACCR engages with companies as a shareholder, advocating for them to improve their environmental and social practices, and in the process, make the company more sustainable. It's no easy feat, but through a modest holding of shares and with the help of a high-performing team, they put forward shareholder resolutions that focus on positive social and environmental outcomes. They're a group of pragmatic lawyers and finance experts, and by utilising shareholder resolutions, they approach some of Australia's biggest companies in a forum they can't ignore. Now, to put a resolution forward, at least 100 shareholders in a company must come together. So if you hold shares in ASX-listed companies and want to be involved in holding them to account on their environmental and social impacts, then let ACCR know about it. Head to accr.org.au slash shareholders to get involved. They're independent, not-for-profit, and they're taking action for more sustainable businesses in Australia. I hope you get as much out of this discussion as I did when we dive deep into Tim's investment approach. And so I do need to emphasize that as always, nothing in this podcast is financial advice. Please do seek your own professional advice before making investment decisions. And if you feel inclined, please do leave a review of this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's super simple. You can leave a comment right there in the app and I would appreciate it. All right, let's get going. Here's my conversation with Timothy King. Here we go. Hello, Tim. Thank you for giving us some time today. Glad to have your insights for this series. Thank you, John. Very nice to be here. Good stuff. Now, obviously keen to dig into what makes the the Melior approach unique. But first, keen to give my listeners a very quick overview of your background. You know, you've had a long career in, in traditional finance, equities analysis, research, trading. What drove the shift to take on the, the challenge of impact? Uh, well, as you said, I've, I've been working in uh, equities analysis for a long time. And so my training is as a, as a fundamental uh, analyst. I started on the, on the sell side. I, I worked with a range of companies, UBS, City. I was head of research at Deutsche. And then I moved by side. So, so that's my training. But I started looking at ESG as opposed to impact. And I know we're going to start talking about the differences down the track, but I started looking at ESG factors as really a, an addition to my tools of financial analysis because embedded in ESG 
there's a lot of information and there's a lot of alpha if you understand those ESG risks and opportunities, number one. And number two, and as equally important, if you can integrate that in terms of what does that mean for the P&L and balance sheet of the companies, there is immense alpha opportunities in that. So that's why I started looking at ESG way before it was as popular as it is today. And in fact, back in the day, and I'm talking 15 years ago, it was kind of like considered pretty odd that I would go to a company meeting and ask them about their emissions and safety and gender diversity and so on, right? So clearly that's changed a lot since then, which is great. So that's the primary reason why I started looking at ESG. But the other reason is I've sat on the board of a couple of not-for-profits. They do great work, but they tend to be under-resourced. And the fact of the matter is the bulk of the economic activity occurs through the lens of public companies, and we have significant environmental and societal problems. So we need to get those public companies to help solve the problem. So that's the other reason why I have an interest in this space. So there's two reasons. Yeah, no, that's really useful and, and interesting to, to appreciate the early diving into ESG because yeah, there's so much confusion about the term still today. So I can imagine back then it would have would have been even more interesting. But you know, winding from that background up to where we are today, the Australian Equities Impact Fund, is that it? We're Australasian. So including New Zealand, yes. Very good, very good. All right. A few details about the fund. So coverage, we've just covered that. Australia and New Zealand. How many stocks? What, what's the ballpark there? In the investable universe is the All Ords and the NZX. So there's a lot of companies in there. But we run a pretty concentrated portfolio. Currently, it's just over 30 stocks. So you know we're some very selective what we invest in and we're long-term investors. So we take a very long-term approach to the way we think about um, investing in companies. Got it. And, and where are you up to in terms of uh, funds under management? Well, I won't give you an exact number because we're still relatively new. We've been going two years and one quarter, but we've had exceptional performance. Um, our benchmark is the ASX 300. We don't have, have any favours in any particular benchmark that would favour us. So we can play with the mainstream fund. We've had exceptional performance and our farm has grown, albeit from clearly a low base because we started with a, a, you know, a very small number, but we've, we've grown very strongly. Sure. And, and do you have an overriding impact theme? Is there a single or a group of, of, sort of outcomes that you're targeting? Well, our guiding framework is the UN Sustainable Development Goals because we think that they provide the best framework for thinking about creating a better world, both in terms of governance, society, and environment. Having said that, they are far from perfect. One of the main reasons for that is they were designed for governments rather than companies. So there's some translation required, but UNPRI has done some work around translating those UN SDG goals to investable themes. And, and we've actually done additional work around that to build out those thematics. But that's our guiding light. And the reason for that is, you know, we, we don't want to just keep it narrow because we face a whole suite of problems. And we think companies, as I said at the beginning, have a vital role to solve those problems across the board. So we, we, we wouldn't want to rule any of those out. So some of them clearly are much harder to invest in than others. That's right. That's right. Well, look, you know, going from what you said earlier, having this really early analytical interest in, in this idea of ESG and winding back to today when this term is, is used so broadly and, and in some ways, you know, the term has become popular, that's great, more people are using it, but, but in some ways ESG and impact are being used synonymously. So 
how do you define impact? And I guess, you know, in defining that, how do you make it distinct from ESG? Well, we think it's entirely different. And, and I'll explain all that. And there's some other elements in this, which will be even more confusing, but I think it's important. So first of all, there's the notion of impact in terms of if I invest in company X, it provides goods and services that will help solve one or more UN SDGs and the problems that are embedded in solving what that SDG is targeting, right? So that company's products and services create positive impact. So that's one dimension of impact. The second dimension of impact, and this is where the additionality question comes in, is how do we engage with that company so that when it goes about producing those products and services, it does it in a better way, better for society, better for the environment, right? And has better governance as well. And and that's how we create additionality. But that, so that's another conceptually actually different form of impact. Both of them are important. The ESG bit is the way we think about how a company goes about doing its business. Say we've got company X that's producing widget Y, that widget is helping solve one SDG and addressing that SDG. We, it's very important to understand how that company goes about doing business. What's its emissions profile? What's its waste water usage? How does it treat its employees? What about safety? What about the governance of the company? That's how we think about SDG. It's about how does the company go about doing business? And that feeds into the other aspect of impact. That's where the additionality comes through. It's about improving the ESG credentials of that company. And then overarching all that is purpose, which I think is another concept again, which tends to not get spoken about enough and tends to be perfect poorly understood and that what what is the company's purpose the company's purpose isn't to produce widget y it's actually bigger than that by producing widget y it solves all these problems and that ties together the impact in the esg and i think that's a really important concept as well and as i said doesn't get much attention but it's critically important and i mean this idea of additionality right it's it's a term you know some people may not have heard of it those that have may may be constantly confused by it but they're really about talking about this investment being additional, right? That, you know, the impact wouldn't happen were it not for your investment. So this is really challenging in a secondary market, right? In, in listed equities. So, you know, you mentioned there some of the ways, you know, you're very obviously cognizant of this challenge. How do you guys sort of ensure that, that, that that's plugged in? The impact needs to be a target and it needs to be measurable, right? And the impact occurs through multiple dimensions. So we frequently speak to the boards of companies, for example. And we have very clear evidence where the companies on the record say it's because of their engagement with Mali or that they have, whatever it may be, adopted a reconciliation action plan, adopted a 40-40 gender target. It's, it's because of our, the engagement with us. And the engagement with us about education in many respects, because what we find is companies with the best will in the world, because this is such a complicated space, both in terms of the breadth of the issues, but the depth it's becoming deeper in terms of the complexity and the speed of change. The first derivative is accelerating, right? It's just getting faster. So it's a whole bunch of complexity. So we provide, I think, a really important job talking to companies about what we think they need to do to to address their issues. And by the way, explaining to them, because it's, it's, if we look at investor land, there was this notion that you invest the same the way we do, you'd have to take a discount on returns. Well, we've certainly proven in, in the time that we've been going that the inverse is the case, right? We've had very, very good returns. And indeed, the academic evidence supports our case. Well, 
many companies think the same thing. Right? We start a meeting, they go, well, this all sounds really interesting. How much is it going to cost us? And so it takes time to explain, well, once again, the academic research indicates that you actually will generate a more resilient company that through time will outperform through time. So, you know, there's a parallel there and sort of you know, correcting that, those incorrect views that incorporating a sustainable investment approach to your, the way you run the business or the way you invest will actually generate superior returns, not, not inferior returns. So one way we drive additionality is through, um, as I said, talking to companies directly. And we've got companies on the record, as I just said, saying that, you know, it's because of talking to us, they've done what they've done. Now, sometimes it'll be because other people are talking to them as well. And, and that's fine. The more the merrier, the more people that are encouraging companies to drive positive change, the better. So that's the company side of it, but it's much broader than that. It's about talking to policymakers. It's about talking to regulators. It's about building consortiums of how do we drive change. So it occurs through multiple dimensions. What that builds to is ultimately the companies who don't build sustainable business models have a high cost of capital and indeed will maybe even have difficulty attracting capital. Clearly, those companies will underperform through time. So it's multidimensional. Sure. Yeah, this idea of you know, driving additionality through engagement, you can see that's really powerful. But you, know, you, you guys invest in, in some big companies, you know, CBA, Fortescue are there. Is the influence greater than simply the weight of your shareholding? You know, because I think you guys aren't the hugest member on, the, on their shareholding register. How are you able to drive that influence? I think the starting point's wrong with respect, John. I don't think you need to be a shareholder. So I think that's a complete misnomer. And I'll tell you why. I mean, this week, I presented the board of a large emitting company. We don't invest in them. They reached out to me and said, look, we've seen what you're doing. We're getting so much stakeholder pressure that we need to drive change. We want to actually talk to you because you're not a shareholder. You're completely independent. You're not a consultant. You're not, I've got no extra grind. I presented the board this week and told them what they needed to do, in my opinion, in terms of a whole bunch of things. So I think this notion, um, number one, that you have to be a shareholder isn't correct. And I think the other thing is, without sounding arrogant, we know the space as good as anyone else. So we do all our own work. We don't use any external data providers. And so when we talk to a company, I think we've got a really deep understanding of the ESG factors at play, uh, deep understanding the financials, the deep understanding of the company, how ESG and financials intersect and how we think about things. And I think companies get benefit from talking to us. So I don't think the shareholding is really an issue at all. And that's certainly been our experience given the significant engagement we have with companies at the very highest level, meaning the board. Does that assume though that they're that they're aware of their need to change and that they're and that they're willing, you know, that they'd come to you? Are there, are there not companies that you might be invested in that are just, you know, pushing on with the status quo and, and you're the one that's seen something different? You're like, no, hang on, I can help you guys. I mean, I just had a call then with a the company that's made rapid progress right across the ESG spectrum. They've got significant issues and difficulties in the business. Once again, it's a hard to abate sector. And I've been on this journey with them in terms of improving their disclosure and their targets. But I'm not going to say for a moment, you know, I've been primarily responsible for that. Having said that, I just made a suggestion then about something and they said, yeah, look, we'll, we'll take it on notice. It's a really good idea. It's something we need to develop. That's an exception, I think. I think the vast majority of companies are really struggling with, as I just said, the depth, breadth, complexity of these issues, um, it's not something they've typically had to deal with before. 
and we provide a deep research, often independent voice of, of um, someone they can talk to, to um, help think about these things. So, you know, there's a wide spectrum of where the companies are at and what their needs are and how we can influence them. Yeah. And on that idea of influence, I think that's really powerful. Do you have aspirations to, to influence not just the companies, but you know, your investing peers, right? The other big fund managers that haven't quite engaged with this other perspective. Do you talk to other fund managers as much as, as companies and, and help sort of expand the, the views on impact and ESG? Uh, well, we certainly participate in public forums. You know, we write a lot of thought pieces. I teach at UTS, for example, pro bono. I, I taught as part of the MBA course two, two nights ago. So we, we certainly are out there educating and it would be nice that, you know, there were more voices in the room. I mean, we're, well, I'm not saying we're the only one. There are some other good fund managers out there who do this well. But, you know, I think this industry will change ultimately such that what we're doing and what I'm talking about now just becomes, we won't be labelled as an impact fund because every fund will be an impact fund, right? It's, it's like the logical way to invest because... As we say in economics, it's greater optimal, right? There isn't a trade-off. You can get better societal and environmental outcomes and better returns. So why wouldn't you do that? So I think this is where the industry is heading. I I think it's happening rapidly, but it's not easy. Um, And why it's not easy is you need trained professionals with deep research experience who actually understand ESG and integrate that into their research. I'm not talking about some ESG person sitting in the orbit and I'm not saying those people aren't qualified. They're, they're usually very good, but it needs to be integrated. And that has to occur at the company level with the analyst doing it. And, and that's not that easy to do because just for one problem is finding the people with the experience and knowledge to be able to do that. Definitely. Now I'd like to dig into some details about your impact management practice. We talk a lot about impact measurement on this podcast. We don't mind getting a little bit wonky. Can you talk us through some of your processes and your frameworks? That's actually quite complicated. So we look at a company and we go, is its core product or service in terms of its revenue share of the business and or its market share aligned or positively or negatively to one or more UN sustainable development goal, right? So we want to invest in a company where where they primarily do. Now, many companies do other things as well. So we're interested in the core products or services, but some companies do some good things and some bad things. So we've developed the scoring methodology to make an assessment as to whether the company overall is net positive or net negative. Now, that requires judgment and there's a framework around that, but you know, that's no different to any other form of analysis, right? As analysts, we're making judgment calls all the time, but it's a repeatable process that goes into a lot of detail about what the companies actually do. The market share question is really important because if you look at a company like Amcor, Amcor is a packaging company a minority share of its revenue is tobacco packaging, right? But they are the top three producer in the world. We think that's really important to understand that, right? Although it's a minority share in terms of the company, in terms of actual market share, in terms of the impact it's having from a market share perspective, it's very significant. So we capture all that. And just by the way, because that's an example, we look through supply chains as well. We think that's really important. So in the case of tobacco, we're not interested in just cigarette manufacturers. We're actually looking at the products that go into the man- so manufacturer. In this case, Amcor, it's packaging. It's actually facilitating the manufacture of cigarettes. And we're also interested in the retailers as well. Who's distributing them, right? So this is the Met Cashes and Coles and Woolworths of the world. So we factor all that in when we look at those companies, right? 
that's the net impact score. We, we, we don't have any preconceived ethical notion that something's bad. So, for example, mining, we think it's really critical to mine essential products to enable renewables. So, for example, we need lithium, we need nickel, we need copper, and provided those materials are extracted in the most responsible way possible, we can consider to uh, you know, investing in those companies. Really, we'd never invest in a thermal coal company, but yeah, copper mining company we consider investing in. So that's how we think about impact. It's aligned, as I said, driven by the UN Sustainable Goal Framework. So then we come up with a gateway. So that's, you know, is the company net positive or negative impact? We discard the companies that are net negative impact. Then we do the ESG assessment. That, that's like, how does the company go about doing business? So we look at a wide range of factors across the E, the S, and the G. And I'll give you an example. We, we go into a lot of detail. So if we look at emissions, we would say, is first of all, does the company disclose scope one, scope two, scope three? Are they committed to TCFD? Are they committed to science-based targets? Do they have net zero targets? Are they Paris aligned? So it's a way about building a data set to evaluate the ESG credentials of the company, right? And as I said, we do all our own work. We don't use any external data providers. And there's good reasons for that. And I'm happy to explain that if you want. So we basically want to invest in companies with the best set of ESG credentials with net positive impact. Then we do the financial analysis. And that's critically important. So that's when the sort of normal traditional fund management stuff kicks in. We want to invest in companies with attractive valuations, strong cash flow, strong balance sheets, and so on and so forth. Then we form the portfolio. As I said before, it's a relatively concentrated portfolio. We're very long-term thinkers. That's the fourth step. And the fifth step is the advocacy. How, how do we drive change? How, how do we go about talking to policymakers, regulators, and companies to influence companies we, we invest in, but also companies we don't invest in? That's the process. That's great. We could we could easily spend another hour just talking about those five steps. But um, building your own data set that that's so interesting. How do you find the quality, the volume, the types of data you're able to pull from these companies? Are you able to make comparisons within your portfolio? Because you know we often find that the uh, similarities that having consistent data can be really difficult. Oh, it's it's a real problem, John. Well, clearly, there's no standards around how to report this data, unlike financial reporting. And I know there's initiatives underway, and I'm part of those working groups to try and do that. So the problems are there's there's significant data gaps, there's significant inconsistencies in the in the data, and and that makes that really challenging. But I think it makes it even more important to do your own work, right? Because you need to understand what those deficiencies are, and how you normalize, and how you adjust, and how you estimate. So that's what we try to do. We build all that in. We have an understanding of what the gaps are, what the deficiencies are, what the inconsistencies are. We adjust and normalize the best we can. And we also have tools in place where it's relevant to be able to provide estimates. And so you know, scope three emissions is a classic on that. Companies sometimes you know, either don't report their scope three, only actually port, report part of their scope three, say operational scope three, and, and not full supply chain scope three. So that's where... The experience and knowledge is really important to understand that you know, there are data deficiencies there. And, and we have tools available where we can estimate those scope three emissions to understand where the company's actually positioned vis-a-vis net zero and vis-a-vis being Paris aligned. Definitely. Well, look, your experience and your long career in research and analysis is clearly coming through there and been well diverted to impact. You know, it's so important to, to build that capacity and build that skill set. And as you said, there's frameworks on the way and hopefully the companies are improving with what they offer and, and how they manage that. 
The final point was policy and advocacy. And I think that's a really interesting one that's starting to get more oxygen. It might be because there's sort of this pushback against ESG and it's, I think, positive in some ways that it's starting the conversation and we can be more rigorous and push greenwashing out of the scope. But articles like Alan Schwartz has been writing some really interesting stuff uh, about this vital importance. How are you guys managing that? Like, what are the, the levers that you can pull? Well, I think there's lots of levers, John. Is it is it easy? No. But, you know, we have exchanges, we have uh, regulators, we have state governments, we have federal governments, right? And I think it's um, important to engage at all those levels. As I said, it's not just about talking to companies. There's, a, there's other bodies that are really important to talk to as well. And I think if we're all, you know, if we're, we're talking across the spectrum, that we're more likely to get the positive change that, that we need. Definitely, definitely. You've mentioned, you know, a few companies along the way there. But I'd love to dive into, into some of the key darlings that you've got. Many of my guests say that, that they're all their children and they can't pick one. But uh, are there any particular companies? I'm going to ask you to pick them. You know, something that is really impactful, that's got some good operations and, and maybe that's, you know, made a pivot of late that, that's in the light and, and made some good shifts. We spoke to a company a couple of weeks ago, in this case, talking about gender diversity and introduced them to the concept of the Hester 404020. And, and because we, you know, they agreed with us that it's important, you know, to have better gender diversity in terms of their company. We didn't get to, you know, diversity beyond gender because they're not at that stage, right? So, and that they agreed with us that, you know, you will get better outcomes from that, right? You get more diverse thinking, probably attract more talented people in the organization, so on and so forth. So they owned us actually and said, well, actually, we listened to what you said, you know, and we're going to go ahead and, you know, adopt that 40, 40, 20 target. So although the company's, you know, not doing anything exciting from a technological perspective, I, I think those sort of sort of more mundane moves are super important, right? Because if we get every company to ship like that, we're going to have demonstrable change. But I won't name the name of the company in that particular case. But if you look at a company like Vulcan Energy Materials, and full disclosure, we're invested, it's listed on the market, but Vulcan has this unique technology to extract lithium from the brine of the geothermal activity in Germany. So the upper Rhine has significant geothermal activity. It already has geothermal electricity generation. So they've developed technology where they can just lever off that. The brine comes up to power the electricity, to power the turbines, they extract lithium out of that. And then it goes back into the ground, just like it was doing before. So they were able to extract lithium without any mining. So it's zero carbon lithium. Now, the OEMs, being the big car manufacturers, that's exactly what they want. So there's technology occurring in medium, small companies that, you know, is really exciting in terms of driving the sort of change we need. So there's the technology aspect. But then I think, I think the sort of more mundane stories, like my first one, are really important as well. Because if we can get those sort of companies particularly, you know, big employers, big emitters to make those sort of changes, that's extremely encouraging and gives me hope, to be frank. Yeah, oh, look, thank, thanks for uh, those examples. They're great. That idea of this new technological innovation, right, that's driving this huge opportunity, it's really a question of what's incentivizing that right now and, and you know, a price on carbon, right, cap and trade scheme, the dreaded carbon tax. How important do you think that is? Is that something that you'd advocate for? Oh, completely. But, you know, we've seen the experience here, John, of, you know, going down that route. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm just saying I wouldn't be holding my breath for that, right? But we know that. And I saw Alan's piece the other day saying that, you know, we know that price on carbon is the most efficient way to drive emissions down. But clearly that's politically charged. And I think that would be certainly extremely helpful. 
and it may come. I'm not saying it's not going to come. I'm just saying it's not obvious it'll come soon. But I think if Australia does commit to net zero by 2050 to go into the COP, Glasgow, you know, the technology roadmap's not going to get there, right? We need and we need a price signal to accelerate the technologies. You're absolutely right. But if you look at it, something like you know net zero lithium, for example, it's why is that happening? It's because the OEMs want to produce net zero carbon cars, right? And why do they want to do that? Because people like you and me, who when we buy a car, we're insisting on that. So I think this is happening irrespective of there being a price in carbon because stakeholders are demanding it. It's whether my kids don't want to go and work for a company that's destroying the planet. When I buy a car or whatever, I want to buy a net zero car. That's increasingly the case. So I think that stakeholder pressure and then shareholders as well, clearly, right? So all those stakeholders are putting pressure on companies to make changes. I think that's happening. If we had a price on carbon, would that be good? Absolutely, it would be because it's going to accelerate it. But I think it's happening anyway. The icing on the cake would be policy change to accelerate it is the way I think about it. No, no, that's that's solid. I'll let you go. Um, I know we've been, we, I'd love to keep chatting here, but I think the coming COP26 conference is really interesting, but but so hard to know. You know, we've been disappointed in the past. You know, Copenhagen was was really pivotal in my sort of career of having so much hope and, and it being dashed. How are you looking at it? Have you guys done much research? Do you have any sort of views on, you know, what you'd love to see happen and then the reality of, okay, we think that, you know, this could actually happen? You know, is there going to be a, an announcement of a, of a global carbon trading scheme? Do you have any bets? Oh, I've been bitten so badly. And, and even Paris, to be frank, and I happened to be in Paris at the time. And it was a fantastic announcement, but the action subsequent to that up until now is hardly very encouraging. So I don't hold great hope for these conferences because I just think politically it's it's really hard, amongst other things. My hope is more is what I just said, is that increasingly the stakeholders are demanding change, whether it's about emissions, waste, water, safety, gender equality, diversity beyond gender. It's being ratcheted up. And so I think that's going to drive the change rather than these big political agreements. But I live in hope that something comes out of Glasgow that's actually serious and meaningful and sticks. All I'm saying is that I don't hold out great hope, just given the history to date, where these conferences tend not to deliver. That, that's my concern, but I try to be optimistic. Definitely. No, look, thank you. I mean, that, that's kind of the tension that this entire podcast <laughs> is balanced on, right? Of those two forces, the hope for regulation, but then also the pragmatic realization of the power of markets. And yeah, you know, we definitely could chatter on about that all day, but I'm going to let you go. I think that's a good place to leave it. And we could chat for days, John, but it was a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Thank you, Tim. Keep up the good work and all the best. Information in this podcast is not intended as financial advice. If there has been mention of financial products, it should not be taken as a recommendation and it shouldn't be relied upon. It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation or the particular needs of any potential investor. You should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. If you're in Australia, you can visit moneysmart.gov.au for more details.